As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One House Podcast. I'm Chris Kim. Today we have Valentin Zadarin, private equity investor at Singular Guff. Val is a Haas MBA alum and an experienced entrepreneur and investor. Val's background includes studying electrical engineering in Odessa, and Val was recently featured in Poets and Quants about his views and experience on the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Val, welcome and great to have you on the show. Hi, Chris. Hey, everyone, and thank you for having me. Yeah, Val, it's, it's been great just even in our pre-call talking and connecting. You know, could you talk a little bit about your background? You know, on paper, you studied engineering in, in Ukraine and then came to Haas for your MBA. Could you talk a bit about, you know, what was it like growing up and how does that experience really form who you are today? Yeah, sure, Chris. I'm originally from Odessa. It's Miami of Ukraine. It's a city on the south of the mm. country on the coast of Black Sea. It's an incredible place to grow up, really. It's fun, you know, it's especially fun in the summer. Right now, probably I won't recommend going to the beach because it's full of landmines, mm. you know, because we are trying to prevent invasion right now across the country. But yeah, really, I've had an incredible childhood in the city. I studied engineering, as you mentioned, you know, that as well. Can't really pretend that it was a well thought of choice because mm. when I was making that choice, I was like, what was it, 15, 16 years old? And mm. um, at that point in time, I was pretty sure that I'm going to be a rapper. Mm. And <laughs> I didn't really care what what educational background I get. But mm. it turned out that it's great basics to, you know, be in the industry that covers technology where I am now. Yeah, absolutely. For some folks, you know, the goal post MBA is to become an entrepreneur and to do exactly what you were already doing. But you actually came back, you know, after even having that kind of dream for a lot of people. What else were you thinking about besides the exposure? Was there anything else you were thinking about from the MBA? And then how did you end up choosing to come to Haas and some of the schools maybe that you selected? Absolutely. So I guess for me, it was completely different from what's probably the usual path is from from a corporate to MBA then to entrepreneurship. It was a pivot in a way because I mentioned we we had a small logistic company. It's they're not as small by the way now. My the guys are still running it and it's a great business. But for me at certain point in time I realized that it's not a unicorn story and I might in the best case scenario, I will, you know, I'll be uh, well off financially, but I'll still be like very local sort of businessman. And as I mentioned, I decided that I want to give it a shot, you know, take a risk and just explore international markets a bit. And I can't say that I won't get back to entrepreneurship <laughs> at some point in time. I guess it's a disease probably in a way, but I had this another dream of mine as well. I really liked, you know, investing and even on my own with limited funds, I was trying to, you know, to do something in that field. For me, the pivot was about 
going into MBA with the goal of shifting, changing both geographies and the industries. I really didn't have financial experience, you know, that I could really market in, in the United States. And MBA was path that made sense for me to, to just make a switch to another industry and change the geography as well. The only connection that I, I, I knew two things. The first one is I wanted to, I saw big potential in technology. So I wanted to start in the right field, in the right market. And what's the best way to do that other than Bay Area. And the second thing I probably I, I actually could relate to um, the four defining principles because it's funny because usually you think, you know, it's just a marketing tool of some sort. But in reality, I, the, some of those are indeed what I've been trying to be as a person. And it's one of the things that I actually wrote in my essay. Uh, like my favorite one is confidence without editing. And yeah, it's indeed, it fits my, my personality really well, I think. And uh, I believe after my experience of working with different, you know, graduates and different, from different schools, Berkeley and Haas is really distinguished by incredibly smart and hardworking people who are modest and have the confidence without attitude at the same time. So that's what, that was one of the things that I, actually uh, uh, was able to relate to. But when I got to the school, it turned out that it, it was actually an amazing fit. I realized only after being, you know, at Haas, how lucky I got, essentially, because it was challenging. As someone who is trying to change, like, so many things, geography, you know, professional field, the culture and the language, everything was a challenge for me. I had to work quite a bit. But the environment there is just incredibly supportive and everyone starting from my classmates to just uh, faculty, I got a lot of support in the school. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad I ended up in Berkeley and I made the right choice in the end. You had a big dream, but you were able to accomplish that dream. You graduated from Haas and went into banking and, and then soon after a couple of years in private equity now. Could you talk about what that experience was like transitioning and then also you know, what did it feel like going from being an entrepreneur and then graduating the program and now you're you were in your professional career as an investor now yeah i think honestly it was probably more challenging for me than it had to be because i was used to be you know more on the entrepreneurial side making my own decisions and trying to drive things forward when you get into like big corporations such as Barclays. I, I spent a couple of years as an investment banker and technology group at Barclays. When you get in that sort of an environment, it's very different because, you know, from one side, you really have to learn a lot. And I realized that, you know, I, I don't have an attitude, as I mentioned. So I was trying to learn as much as possible. But it's, at the same time, it's just corporate world is, quite different from uh, entrepreneurship in, in, in its nature. And for me, I'm incredibly lucky to, to an additional switch after two years at Barclays, two and a half years at Barclays. I'm now, I just recently 
moved to private equity investing at a firm called Sigurdagaf in New York. And we invest and acquire companies in the merchant market. And I feel that that there's a huge overlap with my experience, my interests, the mission that I can see for myself in uh, investing in emerging markets because, I mean, I'm myself from emerging market and I had a chance to see firsthand just the impact of, you know, diligent international investors when we will probably get into it, but after revolution in Ukraine in 2014, I spent some time in uh, investment team of the government. I uh, volunteered to help on the investment team, investment committee of the local Odessa government in Ukraine. And I was help. I was working with incredible individuals. And one of them is former president of uh, Georgia, uh, Mikhail Saakashvili, who used to be yeah professor at uh, Columbia University. And right now, by the way, he also suffers from injustice of the regime in Russia, because he was in strong opposition to Russian regime being the president of Georgia. And afterwards, he moved to Ukraine when yeah his term ended. And he's now for, I want to raise this point as well. He's now actually jailed in Georgia and for uh, what I believe uh, completely political reasons. So we have to be aware of that as well. But back in the time, you know, I spent I spent some time helping them with uh, their investment strategy and really saw firsthand how important international investors are for emerging country like Ukraine, for, for example. And so I'm glad to be, you know, on the other side of the table now and to do something that I feel really changes life of people in uh, those countries for the better. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's awesome to hear that you can do that in your work as well. You know, one of the other things I think is pretty notable is you, you've come out very publicly to gather support for the Ukraine and the Ukrainian people. Could you talk about what it was like when you first heard about the recent aggression and what was going on? You know, you were, like you said, working in the States and working on all the things that you were doing in your day job. And then the aggression started to build fairly quickly. Could you explain you know, some of the background and then also what was your experience like when you first started hearing about what was going on in your home country? Of course, I think as every Ukrainian, I took it really personally, obviously, because, you know, in reality, it's completely the, just the injustice of, uh, of that tag by itself. It just breaks my heart because I have a personal story with Ukrainian culture and I'll dive into it in a little bit. But for me, as someone who has family in Ukraine, and I think many of my friends right now are risking their lives. And I believe what they're risking their lives for is not only Ukrainian nationhood or it's just Ukrainian matter. In reality, and it's probably one of the you know most important things that just an idea if I had uh, if I could leave you and the audience with with some sort of an idea it would be this I think 
it's not just Ukraine Russia war. I won't say much about just injustice of the attack or the fact that it's in reality it's a war of autocracy against freedom, I believe, of dictatorship against democracy, because dictator can't afford having real democracy on that border. And uh, there are just different parts of history that I could bring into it, into the whole conflict. But I think the most important thing for everyone to realize is that at this point in time, regular Russians, and I'm speaking about like 60% of people there, they just hate everything connected with United States. And they hate European Union, they hate US because they blame US and EU for their poverty and for their failures, or essentially the failures of the government. And you know why? Because the government has been telling them that for, for a decade now. You know, Russia is essentially a very, it's a poor country and they spent huge portion of their budget on military and uh, just police, like internal police, because they're really afraid uh, of any potential revolution or any potential, you know, something that could resemble democracy within the country. And they spend a lot of money on that. But in addition to that, like based on different estimates, like 15 or over 25% are spent on media. And when I say media, I mean propaganda. And it's a huge amount of money that was going into like media inside and outside the country. And they've been doing it for decades. And unfortunately, when you, you can just go on YouTube and see interviews of just regular people on the streets in Russia who might throw you an idea about like nuking United States or taking over Berlin, I think it's crazy and it's scary. And I realize that not all of the Russians are like that. And I, I have a bunch of friends who are completely sane people. But what's scary is this level of propaganda that's happening right now. And in the US, you know, you, I might hear people sometimes saying that there's no national interest of United States in Ukraine. We don't care who's going to rule Donbass. And we should not be risking like World War III here. Unfortunately, first of all, it's immoral position to have. And secondly, just because it's a genocide, you know, in the middle of Europe right now, it's really a genocide. What's happening is horrible. And secondly, unfortunately, when you stick with that sort of a storyline, you are just playing Chamberlain. You are not preventing World War III. You are just postponing it. And obviously, NATO is not going to intervene and fight on behalf of Ukraine at this point. It's, it's unfortunate because I believe it could prevent like additional victims, but I can understand that. At the same time, I think the best thing that everyone can do right now is to help Ukraine to stop stop this aggression right here, right now, to prevent like horrible consequences for, for the entire world later on. To your point, 
you know, the, the power of propaganda specifically in Russia is, is pretty significant, right? And one of the things I noticed in something that was written in another publication was that you were saying that you mentioned about Russian justification for attacking, you know, and killing people in Ukraine. Can you, for folks who aren't aware of that, maybe aren't keeping up with the news, could you explain a bit what that justification is? And can you also explain why that may not make any sense to people who actually were living in Ukraine based on, you know, what, what are some of the propaganda coming out against Ukraine and the Ukrainian people? Yeah. And thanks, Chris. I think it's a really important question to highlight. So let me start with just my personal connection. What they justified with is there are a couple of things. So first one is to support local Russian-speaking population in Ukraine. And second is to prevent Ukraine from entering NATO. So keeping those two theses in mind, my personal perspective as someone who has been speaking Russian in Ukraine for my whole life. My whole family speaks Russian. Let me put it this way. In 2013, we had a revolution in Ukraine. 2013, 2014. Why it happened? Essentially, we had a puppet president who was sponsored by Russia, as it turned out. And that's uh guy at one point he decided unilaterally that instead of integrating with European Union, Ukraine is gonna into integrate with Russia instead. And so after that it evolved from a small protest, a couple of students, you know, a few hundred people went out to the main square in Kiev in the capital with a peaceful protest. And they were at some point severely beaten by riot police on the order of the president, of the former president, essentially. And at that point in time, you know, on the next day, there were hundreds of thousands of people on the streets because you can't really beat someone up or shut someone up in Ukraine by force. You cannot make people who have like values of freedom deep in their blood to just shut them out by force. And that started the revolution, essentially. There many people, unfortunately, you know, we, we had to pay with blood. Many people died. And I was one of the guys who, who actually, I, I was running out there on the streets as well. And it was scary to go out. There were protests. There were some blocking police preventing them from, you know, leaving headquarters and all of that. It was scary, but what was even more scary is to think what will happen if you don't go out? Like, if you won't go out, how the country and the place you live is going to look next day. And essentially, we prevented uh, Ukraine at that point. We, the former president, he ran to Russia and democratic government was elected and we prevented ukraine just becoming another puppet state of russia at that point that's the goal of russian regime is to keep that sphere of influence of the former ussr 
and established puppet regimes in uh, neighboring countries, essentially. And Ukraine at that point prevented that from happening. So Russia, as a great neighbor, they just backstabbed us and they intervened. They took Crimea, annexed Crimea at that point in time in 2014, and they started a war on the east of the country. Again, saying that they're helping Russian-speaking population there. So myself as a Russian-speaking citizen of Ukraine, I, first of all, had never experienced any issues with speaking Russian or speaking any language I want in Ukraine. As someone who was born, you know, in a probably typical for that geography, cultural environment, I didn't really identify myself as a Ukrainian per se back in 2013. I, I mean, I didn't have this strong cultural affinity to Ukraine, to be honest. I, I knew I'm a citizen of Ukraine, but we always were thinking, you know, that are going to be somewhat in good relationships with Russia, just because it makes sense to be in good relationship with your neighbor, to have like economic relationship and all of that. But at that point in time, in 2014, when Russia backstabbed Ukraine by annexing Crimea with no reason, I started to feel myself as a Ukrainian. And that was the first, that was the first, I guess, mass movement in the country when most of the people started to realize that, you know, we are completely different from Russia and to be safe with this kind of a neighbor, we started to think about potentially joining NATO because NATO was never a thing in Ukraine, honestly, since independence. Uh, if you look at all of the surveys and polls, supporters of NATO, it was less than like 20, 30% of the country. After 2014, everything changed because we realized that we have a neighbor who will and can attack us at any point. That's why, you know, the politicians started to speak about NATO at least. And you have to understand that in reality, it wasn't really an option for Ukraine to become a part of NATO in the next 10 years at least. So when Russia is saying that they started the war to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO, they achieved the opposite because now you can see northern countries, you can see Finland, you can see all other countries who historically suffered from this imperialism that still prevails in Russia. They are start, starting to realize that they need some defense and they need some support as well. So by starting this war, Russia not only, I mean, just blew up their economy, they not only united all of the Ukrainians together, I believe really after the war ends, Ukraine is going to be more united than ever. And it's going to be an incredibly prosperous country in the end. Because this aggression just changed our moral compass inside the country. And at the same time, it brought attention of international organizations to the issues. And I think with international support after the war ends, the best way to 
actually change something, you know, within Russia is to show that Ukraine is going to be prosperous and successful. And hopefully after Russian people see that, they will realize that they have to do something with on their own with within the country. Yeah, so I hope that answers the question in a way. In addition to that, some people, you know, there's this concept about um, connection between Russia and Ukraine, that Putin, president of Russia, he's been publishing those crazy notes, having nothing better to do other than just trying to change history, at least. Because that's one of the tools that uh, you will see Russian Empire has been has been leaning to for hundreds of years. And uh, if you really want to know more, I didn't dive deep into the question before, as I mentioned before, 2014. But to really understand the history here, I recently read a book by a professor of Harvard, Sergei Plokhiv, and the name of the book is Lost Kingdom. So it really goes deep into the history and relationships between Ukraine and Russia. And when Kiev was really successful cultural and economic center of the region, there was no Moscow. When Ukraine was, uh, you know, their own government, and by the way, it was democratic government back in the times, the very basis of uh, Ukrainian culture is based on really democratic values. When that was happening, Russia was still under Mongols. And after Russian Empire took over Ukraine, they've been trying to introduce this concept of Ukraine, Russia, and Belarus is the same nation, which is, to start with, not true. You can see distinct cultural differences between between those nations. And by saying that there is some sort of a connection and brotherhood, the only thing they're trying to achieve is not to, you know, help the brothers and sisters. What they're trying to achieve is to just destroy national identity and reestablish this imperialistic sort of mindset. And that's scary because, honestly, it just goes against all of the lessons of history and all of the lessons that we got in the 20th century. You know, Val, as we come to a close, you know, I know we were talking about one of the most important things is the action items, right, as it relates to what people can do. And then also, you know, where should people focus? I know you have talked about some thoughts. Could you could you share a bit about what do you think is important for people in the, to think about and focus on as it relates to Ukraine? And, you know, do you have any action items or, or next steps you think Hasis or the Haas community can do to stay involved and help to support the folks in Ukraine really fighting against the aggression coming in from Russia? Absolutely. And first of all, thank you, Chris, for just having me here because I I think it's really important to talk about it. And we probably are at the point where people are just getting tired of negative news and the war, they're trying to move on. But in reality, it's important for all of us, as I mentioned. It's really 
war against like freedom and the war against uh, Western values. So I appreciate all the help that Ukraine received so far. And I think I've been doing a bunch of those, you know, just calls with people and trying to let people know what they can help with. And there are a few action items. So first of all, it's probably most important. Please use your rights as citizens and appeal to elected representatives. Just move this up on their agenda, essentially. Let them know that it's important for you and let them know that if they want to be elected for the next term, they should be helping Ukraine. I think that's really important thing. Secondly, Ukraine needs weapons and Ukraine needs weapons. And, you know, we've proven Russia failed to achieve really any of the strategic targets for the war in the first month and a half. We've proven that Ukraine is really capable of resisting and we're capable of winning this war at some point. As I mentioned, we're winning this war on behalf of really everyone in the West, including. So to support Ukraine, let your representatives know that uh, they should be supporting, providing help to Ukraine, including weapons. Because in reality, you know, turned out Russia is not as good as uh, some people thought in warfare. We, we have been winning. And the problem is, there are five Russian soldiers on one Ukrainian. And there are like three tanks on one Ukrainian missile launcher. So it's to really fight back and win this Ukrainian weapons. The third thing, and it's, you know, it's really important and I really appreciate everyone, all of my friends here in US and my classmates from Berkeley, I've received so many donations for, for the Ukrainian cause. And it's like tens of thousands of dollars that were channeled through me to NGOs who are helping victims of war, who are helping soldiers now. I really appreciate that. If uh, you want to help on that front, recommend a couple of things. So I recommend to donate the best channel would probably be Razum. It's uh, Razum for Ukraine. It's an NGO. They've been working in Ukraine for 10 years now. It's uh, Those guys are incredible. It, they're completely selfless and they've done a incredible job helping soldiers and refugees and everyone else. So if you want to don- donate, go to razumforukraine.org R-A-Z-O-M for ukraine.org and uh, you'll see a couple of links there with just ways to to donate if you want to feel free to get in touch with me personally and i'll help to match your donations and send them to uh, specific causes you know that's where i'm from where my friends and other you know selfless people they were helping to they're helping refugees and other people who suffered from the from the war. So those three items would probably be the most important ones. I, I think fourth one to, to add to that, we as businessmen, you know, as graduates of us, we are making purchasing decisions, all of us. At some point, we either will be or we are. And 
don't buy Russian products because by buying Russian products, you are paying companies who are going to pay taxes in Russia that in turn are going to be used to finance the war. And it's a war that we are making by our wallets. So be mindful of that and please, you know, check your, check your channels, check companies who are still working in Russia. I think those four things would be the most important ones. Well, Val, it's been so great to have you on the podcast today. You know, we want to wish you and your your family and loved ones all the best. And we'll definitely be supporting you and continue to get this information out to the Haas community. So best wishes and thanks again. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. And go Bears. Go Bears. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There, you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. Go Bears.